I'm Jorge Salazar, reporting from the Texas Advanced Computing Center, part of the University of Texas at Austin. This podcast brought to you by the Friends of Tech. An old mystery of why stars form has been solved thanks to the most realistic supercomputer simulations of galaxies yet made. The mystery begins in interstellar space, the vast space between stars. There you'll find enormous clouds of molecules, mainly hydrogen, with the mass of thousands or even millions of times that of our Sun. Molecular clouds condense and give birth to stars. Astrophysicists have been puzzled since the 1970s by their observations that only a small fraction of matter in the cloud becomes a star and part of a galaxy. They found a lot less of the universe's mass than expected in the middle of galaxies. Things changed when a multi-university collaboration produced a set of new supercomputer models of galaxies called FIRE, the feedback in realistic environments. FIRE simulations ran on the Stampede supercomputer at TAC, an exceed resource funded by the National Science Foundation. Theoretical astrophysicist Philip Hopkins of Caltech led a 2014 study of initial results that found that star activity, like supernova explosions or even just starlight, plays a big part in the formation of other stars and the growth of galaxies. Philip Hopkins spoke more about galaxies on fire. Well, Dr. Hopkins, thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. What are the main findings of your study on galaxy formation, published September of 2014 in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society? The main result, the most exciting conclusion, uh, is really that uh, feedback from stars, so the sort of collective effects of supernovae, uh, radiation, heating, and pushing on gas, and uh, stellar winds, really can regulate the growth of galaxies and explain why galaxies have turned so little of the sort of available supply of gas that they have into stars. It had been a long-running mystery, basically. The general problem has been that when you run models of the formation of galaxies with the things we think we understand, so gravity and chemistry allowing the gas to cool and radiate away its energy, you basically always end up with the prediction that almost all the baryons in the universe should end up in stars, if that's all you include. And in fact, only a few percent of the normal matter in the universe ends up in stars. So that's really what we were trying to figure out and and address sort of for the first time with putting in the real physics of what we know stars do to the gas around them. And yeah, this has been a, a long-standing problem, I imagine, for theorists as yourself. Yeah, it has been, and the idea has been around for a long time, that, that feedback from stars, what we call feedback, this whole set of processes, uh, was important. And you could do some simple, people 40 years ago made some simple estimates and pointed out that the amount of energy, say, released by supernovae was more than the energy of gravity holding all the gas inside the galaxy. So it certainly was conceivable, and then... The problem was that you couldn't really follow all the physics. It's such a messy, chaotic problem with so many different pieces of physics interacting simultaneously that uh, you really needed to simulate it, and the simulations didn't have the resolution or the physics in them to treat all of the processes. So people put in really simplistic prescriptions. They would just assume that somehow feedback worked. They'd say, for every, I'm going to run my simulation, but I can't resolve how stars form or how they affect the medium. So I'll just assume that whenever 
I turn a piece of gas into a star uh, or into stars, I'll throw out some proportional mass from the galaxy uh, and just kick it out completely. Um, and you can tune those models, play with how much you throw out, et cetera, and get some handle on what does feedback or whatever else uh, is going on on these unresolved scales have to do to give you the right observed answer. But it never really was able to answer the question of is this idea of what's actually causing it correct. But I think that's what really the new thing we've been able to do is, is through a combination of basically counting on Moore's law so we can run bigger, higher resolution simulations, but also a lot of work putting new physics into the simulations, we've been able to actually predict how winds get launched out of galaxies uh, in the first place, as opposed to sort of putting it in by hand. I guess we're talking about stars being born, I guess is the way people talk about it. <laughs> but uh, stars being formed and the violence, I guess, associated with that and how that affects the mass of an entire galaxy. And I'm, I guess I'm thinking of like a dandelion maybe in a, in a giant field. You know, how does something so small, comparatively speaking, uh, a star in a galaxy, how does that affect the whole thing? Oh, it's a great question. And uh, I think in detail, that's really been a, a challenge to understand. Um, so the, I mean, the general idea is your, the gas in the galaxy is able to cool down and eventually the sort of cold, dense pockets of gas get pulled under their gravity to form new stars. But when those stars turn on, particularly the, the very massive stars, the ones that live a very... So massive stars, things that are 10 times, 100 times the mass of the sun, live a very short time, uh, maybe only a million years or a few million years. And in that time, they you know, burn through all of their nuclear fuel, and then they either explode, uh, and then a lot of them will explode as supernovae. So these explosions release just a tremendous amount of energy. And the, during the supernova itself, it can, the supernova explosion, it's only one star, but it can actually outshine the galaxy for a short amount of time uh, because it's such an energetic event. You're collapsing a whole massive star into a black hole or a neutron star and releasing all that energy that was binding it together. Um, but even if they don't explode, they're also radiating all this energy. I mean, they're shining, basically. And if you ask how much energy comes out from collectively all the stars in a galaxy shining, it turns out to be something like 100 times the actual energy of gravity that's holding those stars and the gas around them in its orbit. So that starlight can do a lot of things. It can heat up the gas in the galaxies. Basically, that light gets absorbed by the hydrogen and helium in the galaxy and heats it up. And it also, the photons can actually just push. Uh, so that's one of the new pieces of physics that people hadn't really considered because we're used to thinking of light as negligible in this sense. We're not used to thinking of light as pushing on things, especially big things like a galaxy. But uh, light still carries some momentum and when it gets absorbed, it pushes on whatever absorbed it. And it just turns out that there's so many photons, there's so much light coming out of stars in a galaxy that this can actually, again, be more significant than gravity. It can actually push harder than gravity is pulling under a lot of circumstances. And that can launch stuff 
completely out of the galaxy, out to hundreds of thousands of light years away from the galaxy, just by light hitting it basically over and over and over again. And then if the star then explodes as a supernova, then there's this huge extra shock wave coming at it and throwing it out even further. So it's it's a remarkable amount of energy that really comes out of this. So even though the stars are very small, they are good engines. I mean, it really comes down to, in a sense, the fact that, you know, fusion is a very good energy source. So you're getting a lot of bang for your buck for every little amount of mass you put into a star, you get a lot of energy back out. Well, now, Dr. Hopkins, tell us about this project that you worked on, the feedback in realistic environments, or FIRE project. Sure, sure. So it's a multi-institution collaboration with several people I used to work with at UC Berkeley, who are now at uh, other institutions, Northwestern, San Diego, Harvard, Berkeley as well. What we've really been trying to do is understand these processes of how feedback from stars, supernovae, radiation, et cetera, impact back on the galaxies that are forming those stars using a combination of numerical simulations and sometimes old-fashioned pencil and paper theory. And we've been building this up over several years. So the idea was to, rather than just put in in the large-scale simulations where you try to form a galaxy from scratch. You sort of start the universe at the Big Bang, let everything evolve, and and look at the galaxies that come out. We wanted to really build up from the ground up. So in those large simulations where you try to do the whole universe in a box, you typically give up on trying to explicitly treat things like supernova explosions. And we really wanted to sort of take that to the next level. So we started by simulating just single stars and little patches of a galaxy where you could trace every single explosion, say, and then that lets you build a model that you can put into a simulation of a whole galaxy at a time, and then you build that up into simulations of a chunk of the universe uh, at a time. And so that's what we've most recently been doing is following the evolution of, we pick a few galaxies that are interesting And in a simulation of sort of the whole universe in a box, we focus all of our resolution and simulation power on the interesting galaxy. And that lets us both follow the whole evolution over the whole history of the universe, but with enough resolving power, because we're focusing all of our real CPU power on one galaxy. We don't really care about the galaxies that are on the other side of the universe from it. Uh, We don't put as much resolution or computing power into them. It really lets us resolve the very small scales of sort of single light year scales inside those galaxies where individual supernovae are exploding, individual clusters of stars are forming. That's really key to being able to follow these processes that then have a back reaction all the way up to the biggest scales uh, in the galaxy. You know, I guess the natural question is like, what makes a galaxy interesting to an astronomer? And did you have uh, any simulations that you created? Did you have a, a moment that really blew your mind? Yeah, I think so. Uh, there's certainly a lot of reasons why they're interesting. They're interesting because we see them, and they're these sort of amazing structures, of course, and we have this huge amount of data that we haven't been able to explain. But I think somebody like me who works on the theory side, they're interesting because our models have historically been pretty bad um, at reproducing the observations. There have been a lot of serious failures. So I mentioned that the simplest models that people 
thought of for explaining how galaxies form predict that their masses and the number of stars in the galaxies are wrong by orders of magnitude, factors of 10 or 100 or even 1,000 for the smallest galaxies. And you know, we're not talking about tweaking the last little detail. We're talking about qualitatively clearly missing basic physics in some of these models. And there are similar problems with a lot of other aspects. The galaxies that we simulated in the past were always too small. They were these really dense little nuggets instead of the uh, sort of beautiful big spiral galaxies that you see in pictures. So to me, the most exciting part was that we clearly understood them so poorly and there seemed like a lot of progress to be made. And that relates directly to sort of the moments I've had where I've been kind of shocked and very excited from this project. So for example, we did all this work, as I said, on these very small scales modeling how supernovae explode and how radiation interacts with gas. And then we put all of this without just directly from those earlier simulations, we put this into our models where we would follow a whole galaxy over cosmic time and ran it forward. And I've been working on this for years. And in the past, we always used these simple, what we call subgrid models, like the one I described where you just say, every time a star forms, I throw out a bunch of mass. And I have to turn a lot of knobs with those old models. You'd run the same simulation 50 times, and each time you'd tweak some knobs before it looked decent at the end. And 50 wasn't an exaggeration. It wasn't an uncommon thing to have to run that many trials before you got something tweaking knobs that looked reasonable. So my real jaw-dropping moment was when we put this in, sort of really the best faith effort to put the physics that we thought had been missing from the previous models in without giving ourselves a bunch of knobs to turn. We ran it, and it actually looked reasonable. It looked like a real galaxy, and it only had a few percent of the material actually turned into stars instead of all of it in the past. Just the fact that I didn't have to run 50 trials and keep turning knobs to make it look reasonable, but it actually fell out naturally, was pretty shocking to me, but of course very exciting. And I'm sure it wasn't easy. What were the biggest computational challenges that you faced in simulating how galaxies evolve? It's a tough problem, uh, and that's, of course, part of why it's taken so long to, to get to this point. And I think the, a lot of the challenges revolve around the fact that there's such a huge dynamic range in the problem. Both in spatial scale, you care about the material falling in that makes the galaxy, which means you have to resolve scales of at least hundreds of thousands, if not millions of light years. And you care about the scale on which groups or clusters of stars are forming and individual supernovae explosions are happening. So at the very least, you want to resolve scales of a single light year. And that also involves a huge hierarchy of time scales. So the, you want to capture the evolution over the whole age of the universe, which is 14 billion years. But the uh, time scales of the dynamics inside the galaxy, even on the crudest scales you're trying to resolve, are much less than a million years. Sometimes they get as short as 100 years can be the time scales for the dynamics that you care about that actually generate these winds in the first place and launch them out of the galaxies. So doing that in an efficient way, uh, being able to you know, resolve dynamics on 100-year time steps in a simulation that needs to evolve for 14 billion years was really the computational challenge, being able to handle that 
you know, huge hierarchy of scales. That's amazing. I mean, 100 years, that's almost the time scale of an astronomer. Yeah, that's one of the really exciting things about it is that we actually have been thinking about some of the predictions for regions like the centers of galaxies where these dynamics happen very fast. There are things that we might actually be able to measure in our lifetimes evolving and changing in those regions, which is new to me as somebody who's used to thinking about galaxies on much larger scales. Well, Dr. Hopkins, um, could you tell us about the computational resources that you used through XSEED and TAC as well? Almost all of these simulations, we did some code development locally on a cluster we have here, but almost all of the simulations were run on XSEED resources. In particular, the Stampede supercomputer at TAC was uh, the sort of workhorse of these simulations. Earlier, we had been using a couple of other machines, uh, Ranger and Gordon, and then the final production runs. Uh, when Stampede came online, it was a, a real boon to us because it was a really fast machine with enough memory that it could run this. Another challenge is that uh, because there are so many variables that you need to keep track of and relatively complicated interactions, it tends to be a fairly high memory task. So other supercomputers uh, that we had used before, Blue Gene machines, for example, just didn't have enough memory per processor to be able to efficiently handle this kind of a problem. So Stampede was kind of an ideal machine. It was fast. It had large shared memory nodes with a lot of processors per node and good memory per processor. And that really let us you know, run this uh, on a much faster timescale than we'd originally anticipated. And combined with a lot of improvements we made to the sort of parallelization of the problem, we were able to run this problem on thousands of CPUs at a time, which is a lot for this type of problem. Given that kind of dynamic range, you know, there's some problems you can easily run on 100,000 CPUs, but this kind of a problem had in the past been limited. Five years ago, we were running this problem on no more than 64 CPUs at a time. That was the extent of how parallel we could make the problem efficiently. And frankly, even today, a lot of people are not running it on bigger size, uh, on more parallel systems. But we've been able to push it to running on thousands of CPUs at a time. And in fact, for the next generation, we think we can go to something like 32,000 processors at once, which will let us run sort of even bigger scale simulations to follow galaxy, whole clusters of galaxies, for example, uh, which until now has been kind of hopeless to imagine doing with this kind of resolution. Dr. Hopkins, would you speak to um, uh, how your research relates to non-scientists, to people outside the lab? Sure. I think there's a lot of interesting connections. I mean, I'm doing this, of course, part just because it's an interesting unsolved problem and I'm interested in it just for that sake. But there's also a lot of, I think, consequences that matter to everybody on some level or another. Um, and that includes things like, you know, why do galaxies look like what they look like? I mean, all these images that everybody's seen, it's, it's something that actually everybody has a sort of mental picture of the Milky Way. You can imagine pictures people have seen of galaxies with these big spiral arms. And I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that we don't actually know why galaxies look that way and how they came to be. Um, and it also matters for sort of how we came to be. All of these processes 
have a lot of consequences. So, for example, the supernova explosions that I was describing, that's how you put heavy elements back out into the universe. So at the beginning, all there was basically was hydrogen and helium, which if all that was, if that's all that there was now, there wouldn't be us. But stars are able to fuse that into heavier and heavier elements, and then they release that all back when they explode as supernovae. They put all that carbon and oxygen and iron back into the medium between the stars. And we follow that in these simulations. And one of the things we've been trying to understand is how does that, over the course of the age of the universe, sort of enrich and produce the heavy elements in the universe and lead to how they're distributed. Basically, how do we get to where we are today, where there's enough of this stuff to make things like planets and stars like our sun, as opposed to the stars that might have existed much earlier in the universe. So really, if you, you know, I want to understand how we exist and how our galaxy exists in the first place, these are fundamental questions. What's next for this research? Uh, there's a lot of questions that we're still working on answering just from the simulations we've run. Things like, as I mentioned, this work on the distributions of the heavy elements is in progress. Questions about the origin of certain types of strange galaxies uh, is something we really are working on at the moment. What we started with, we're sort of simulating the most typical galaxies. That's the first thing you want to understand, and that's also where there's the most data to compare to. But now that we've done that, we want to explore the, the oddballs, the galaxies that we see that are strange sizes or masses or have unusual properties in some other way. They're forming stars at some crazy high rate, for example. Um, so that's a real next set of simulations we're preparing. And then, as I mentioned, with the improvements in the codes and the uh, computers, we think we can push to even bigger simulations. So we want to simulate the most massive galaxies. And there, we think that there's still another interesting piece of physics, another channel for feedback that a lot of people have talked about and I've worked on before, but again, is ripe for this kind of uh, improvement in terms of putting in the physics and really doing it right. And that's the feedback from black holes. In particular, every galaxy that we see that's massive uh, appears to have a giant black hole at its center. So the Milky Way has one that's a few million times the mass of the sun, but the biggest ones we've seen are 10 billion times the mass of the sun. And if you ask, in the process of falling in, before it actually gets trapped by the black hole and nothing can escape, how much energy gets released from matter falling in and building up these giant black holes at the centers of galaxies, it turns out that for the most massive galaxies, this is even more energy than released by all the stars in the galaxy. So it's almost certainly important, but it's, it's at the edge, and we're just starting to be able to think about simulating those giant galaxies. You've been listening to scientist Philip Hopkins of the California Institute of Technology. For the Texas Advanced Computing Center, I'm Jorge Salazar.